Amen. Thanks for that, Austin. Really appreciate that. A sweet time of worship. Uh, we are kind of doing this, A, because we really want to give a little bit of variety to it, but B, uh, just kind of build some anticipation for next weekend and our Christmas services when we raise the roof in this place and uh, trust the Lord for all that He's going to do uh, among us uh, that weekend as well. I'd love to continue in the spirit of worship if we could and turning our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. So if you join me in Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 this weekend. If you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers, and they'll be happy to put one into your hands. Isaiah chapter 9, and those Bibles that are being handed out, you'll find it on page 573. If that helps you get there just a little quicker, and in your own Bible, you'll find Isaiah right about the middle of your Bible. As I was uh, thinking about this message uh, this week, I thought that I was going to need to remind you of uh, you know, the state of our world, the world in which we live, uh, especially when at Christmas time we you know, kind of tend to tuck things away and let the lights glow, and, and for good reason that way. Um, but in light of the shootings in Connecticut, I'm pretty sure that I don't need to convince you that we live in a topsy-turvy world filled, filled with uncertainty. True? Yeah. From disaster, whether it's natural disaster or man-made disaster, disaster and disease to bloodshed and violence, sometimes it seems as though gloom and doom is all around. Sometimes it seems as though darkness evil is winning the day. And one of my concerns, just in general these days, but certainly on the heels of the shootings that our country has just experienced and that those families in Connecticut are living through, one of my concerns is that people don't know where to look for help. tragedy like this falls and they don't know where to look for hope. And I'm pretty sure that's true of a lot of people in our world. And it might even be true as you, of you as you have walked in here this morning. That you don't know where to look for help and hope and you've been struck to the core like I have by what has just happened. You don't know where to look for help and hope and you don't even know what it looks like if you are looking, especially when an evil young man, clearly in the grip of anger, irrationality, and Satan himself, I would argue, commits such a cowardly, selfish, heinous act as shooting innocent, defenseless school children. Like who would have thought? Who would have thought that someone could be so absolutely gripped by evil. It defies our sensibilities. And while it's impossible to answer all the questions, especially the ones like, why would God allow such a thing? And maybe that's even been a question of yours in the last 24, 48 hours. How could a loving God allow such a terrible thing like this to happen? While it's impossible to answer with any kind of specificity those sorts of questions, I can tell you where to turn for help and hope. I can tell you where to turn. 
I can tell you about the God of all comfort who's able to comfort us in all our affliction, all our affliction. I can tell you about the God who loves you and knows your pain because his son was killed too. I can tell you about the one who works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose even when we can't see it. Even when we don't understand it. Even when we don't understand how in the world he could work all these things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We often don't understand it. But he's done it before. Like when he sent Jesus to Egypt to avoid Herod's killing spree in Bethlehem that first Christmas. He worked all things together for good then. And how about 33 years later when he raised Jesus from the dead so that someday we could too. He worked it all together for good then for those who love him. We may not understand all that happens in our world. We may not be able to answer all the questions about Connecticut and Colorado and Oregon and Hurricane Sandy and the list goes on and on and on and on. But there is help and hope if we know what to look for. And it just so happens that in God's sovereignty, this prophecy from Isaiah points the way. His sovereignty in leading me to decide to preach on this passage several months ago. It just so happens that this passage, as much as any other in the scriptures, points the way to help and hope in times of grave uncertainty. So let's pray. Let's commit our hearts and minds to it, and then we'll get started. Lord, would you help us? God, would you draw near to us even now? breath of heaven, would you fill us with your very spirit? Would you squelch the powers of darkness and would you just flood us and overwhelm us right now as a body of believers here in this place to worship you both in praise and in your word? Do your thing, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to take this a couple of verses at a time. You follow along with me. Isaiah writes, chapter 9, verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Just let that soak in for a second. How appropriate. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. There's a couple things that I want you to see here before we get going and finding out what Isaiah is telling us here. And first of all is this. He's getting across to us that at some point in the future, hope will dawn and joy will increase because a child would be born. All because a son would be given. All because of a baby, he's saying, there's going to be dawn, uh, hope will dawn and joy will increase. We find that in verse 6, which we'll look at in just a few minutes. And the cool thing is, we don't have to guess about who this baby is. We don't have to guess about who this son is. We know exactly what he looks like because Matthew, one of his closest followers, identifies him as Jesus. 
In other words, Jesus is the light that Isaiah spoke of right here in chapter 9. That's the first thing I want you to understand as we get going. Jesus is the light that Isaiah spoke of. The great light uh, that has shown as Isaiah speaks of it. Look at what Matthew says in that respect. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 16 on screen here. He says, now when he, that's Jesus, heard that John, that's John the Baptist, when he heard that he had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Start connecting the dots. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Once again, Matthew, one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his apostles, identifies Jesus as the one that Isaiah spoke of. The great light that dawned on the people. We know exactly who Isaiah is speaking of here in chapter 9. And then, as if that's not enough, Jesus himself completes the picture in John chapter 8, verse 12, saying, I am the light, and he doesn't stop. I am the light of the world. Not just the light of Zebulun and Naphtali and the way of the sea and Galilee of the nations so on, but he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, catch this, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will not walk in hopelessness, will not walk in despair, but will have the light of life, will have the hope and the help and the source of life itself. Whoever follows me, Jesus said, will have the light of life. He completes the picture by expanding on it, by making it a worldwide thing and no longer just a regional thing. He's the light Isaiah spoke of who would offer relief and the light of the world who offers the light of life. That's the second part of this that I want you to see as we get going here. He's not only the light that Isaiah spoke of, Jesus is, but he's the light of the world who offers the light of life. And so what the people in Isaiah's day just hoped for, we have. We have. What they could only imagine by the veiled references uh, down through the ages, uh, the, the types of Christ, and, and the veiled references here and there, and the, the prophetic things that became more and more explicit, uh, what they could only imagine uh, about this Messiah, we can see. We can see. And when you put it all together, it means that everything we find in this passage here in Isaiah speaks of Jesus and applies directly to us. And that with him, with him, comes a variety of blessings for life, no matter what life brings. The first of which is hope. With Jesus, from verses 1 and 2, with Jesus, despair gives way to hope. With Jesus, despair gives way to hope. That's the bottom line in these first two verses that we just read here in Isaiah chapter 9. And it's illustrated by the very situation itself in Isaiah's day. Uh, I've shown you this map. Remember the Assyrians, the great world power that you see there about the middle of the screen. The Assyrians, they eventually in 733 B.C., they swooped in from the north 
to begin to conquer the Israelites of that day. They started it in 733 B.C. and they kept coming until they totally subdued northern Israel in 722 B.C., just a short 11 years later. The result of which is found at the end of chapter 8. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, they, Isaiah is writing again, they, the Israelites, will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. That's not upward in worship. That's upward like turning their nose up, okay? They will turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. As a result of the tyranny of the Assyrians, it's doom and gloom. It's doom and gloom. But listen, all is not lost because look at what he says next. They will be thrust into thick darkness, but there will be, there will be no gloom. That is, in the future, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Her referring to God's people who suffered anguish in the past. In other words, it's been dark and hard, he says. But it's not going to last. It's not going to last. And in that comment, we get a glimmer of hope. We get a glimmer of help. The spark has ignited. And then he steps into the future, prophet that he is, and goes on to explain himself. Look at it again. He says, in the former time, he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That is, he punished them. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Again, he's speaking from the perspective of the future, Isaiah is. Catch this, bear with me. He's speaking from the perspective of the future. So when he says in the former time, he's referring back to the present, his present, okay? And he says that at that time, back in his present, far in the past for us, at that time, God punished the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali being uh, two of the 12 tribes of Israel named after two of Jacob's sons. And because the land that was apportioned to them, right here you can see it on the map, because the land that was apportioned to them was right around the Sea of Galilee in the north, they were the first to be exposed to the invading Assyrian armies and the tyranny that they brought with them, the devastation they brought with them, the despair that they brought with them. That's why he says in the former time they were brought into contempt. Do you see it? But in the latter time, meaning sometime after that day of despair, in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, which is the first way that he uh, uses to generally refer to the same area as Zebulun and Naphtali. Because in that time, in the ancient Near East, uh, the way of the sea referred to the, the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. So he's referring to this area right in here. He says, in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Once again, a generic way to refer to an, either this side of the Jordan River that runs right here or the east side. Probably in that particular day and age, since they tended to think, even the people who lived here, they tended to think about their area from the perspective of the east. Ancient Near Eastern people just did this. They tended to think about where they were in terms of the cradle of civilization that was from the east. And so to say the land beyond the Jordan very well uh, referred to or very likely referred to the land beyond the Jordan from the east to the west. Again, 
this area right in here. And then he says Galilee of the nations, which you can see labeled on the map, especially so in Jesus' day, that whole northern area became known as Galilee. Three ways of referring to the same area as Zebulun and Naphtali, just more generically. Here's the point. The point is that at some point in the future, having suffered so much, God would show them favor. He would make that area glorious. He would make it glorious. In other words, despair would give way to hope. That's the idea. Despair would give way to hope. Then, starting in verse 2, he explains how. He says, the people who walked in darkness, uh, the people of that area, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Again, from the future perspective, Isaiah is saying that the very ones who lived in a death-like grip of gloom and and wickedness and despair, uh, those very people would eventually see a great light, namely Jesus. Why? Because that's where he would live, in Capernaum, which is right here on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. They would see a great light because that's where the great light would come from. The area of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And he would bring his righteousness to bear on their lives. Why would they see a great light? He would bring his righteousness, his light to bear on their lives. On them has light shone. On them the light dawned. The light of the world. The world, the hope of man, the help of mankind. And those who were looking for it saw it. Those who were looking for him saw it. They saw the light. The question is, have you? Have you seen the light? Or are you living a life of gloom and doom and going from one valley to the next and and plagued by despair. Uh, Sometimes it's worse than others. Sometimes it's on the back burner. Oftentimes it's on the front burner. And you just can't escape the gloom of your life. Is that you? Listen, if so, I have really good news for you. Your light has come. And he continues to shine. Waiting for you to see him and repent of your sins waiting for you to be with him and find hope. Hope for your life. Hope for your eternity. He's waiting. He's waiting to shine on you. Because with Jesus, that's what happens. Despair gives way to hope. Have you seen the light? Second here, we find from Isaiah, applying directly to us and to Jesus himself, is that with Jesus, adversity gives way to joy. Not only does despair give way to hope, but adversity gives way to joy. And now, moving a little bit quicker, look at verse 3. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice. This is Isaiah speaking to God. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. When, When all of the grain and all the crops were brought in, and there was much celebration for how God had blessed them with all of it. That's the kind of joy, Isaiah said, that God will bring when his son appears. Joy is at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
Again, he uses the past tense. Do you see it? You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Isaiah uses the past tense to describe something that God would do in the future with maximum certainty. It's so certain it's going to happen, he refers to it in the past. Namely, add to his people. That's the thing that he's talking about here in this verse. Add to his nation. That's the thing that will, will bring joy, which we know from the New Testament that God does by forgiving people of their sin and adopting them into his family. Bringing joy in the process. Joy is at the harvest. Uh, joy is when conquered people are divided up. Joy is like when you receive a bonus or you celebrate a birthday or you get married or whatever the thing is. That's the kind of joy that comes with Jesus. That displaces adversity. Not necessarily making the adversity go away, but displaces it, overshadows it overwhelms it, makes it pale in comparison to the joy of the Lord. And I can't think of a better example of that in real time than Nate Kittleson. Nate Kittleson. Many of you know Nate. I imagine that many of you don't. Nate was an intern here in our church for about eight months this past year until he found out one day uh, after running a fever for a few days, went to the doctor, and the doctor immediately alarmed, sent him to the hospital. The hospital immediately admitted him, and within a few hours, they told Nate that he had a rare form of leukemia that was in advanced stages. A young 20-year-old guy who ran circles around most of us from one day to the next was in a hospital bed. The very next day, he went back to South Dakota to be near his family and begin treatment uh, for the leukemia. That was June of this year, June. But as the weeks went by, and despite the various treatments, including a bone marrow transplant from his brother and all of the increased adversity and suffering and pain of that, it became more and more obvious that Nate wasn't getting better. Painfully obvious. In fact, he was getting worse very quickly so that now Nate's a former shadow of himself. Having been in a hospital bed since June, this is Nate now. From strength to weakness. And the doctors have now told him that unless God intervenes with a miracle, those wouldn't be their words, but that's Nate's. That unless God intervenes with a miracle, there's nothing more that the doctors can do. He's on his deathbed, literally. But here's what I want you to see. And maybe more importantly, here's the thing he wants you to see. Though his health has waned, his joy hasn't. His joy hasn't. Despite the adversity of his intense pain and suffering, his joy remains. His countenance is firm. His confidence is secure. Why? How in the world can that be for such a young man whose life is going to end unless the Lord intervenes miraculously so? How could that be that someone could have such joy in the midst of such adversity? The answer is this. He's embraced Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He's embraced Jesus and he's closer than a brother. Closer. He's embraced Jesus and he abides with him and he with the Lord. 
never to be separated, never to be forsaken. And Nate knows that no matter what happens, no matter how much pain, no matter how much suffering, no matter what, he knows that God loves him and cares for him and will keep him for all eternity. That's how he can have the joy that remains. Does that mean that all his adversity just disappears? Obviously not. Obviously not. It simply means there's joy in the midst of it because Jesus is in the midst of it. It simply means that there's joy in the midst of his adversity because Jesus is in the midst of him. Him. Listen, with Jesus, adversity doesn't necessarily go away, but it does give way to joy. Amen? That's the way it is, and that's the way it should be for every follower of Christ. That's number two. Number three, Jesus With Jesus, oppression gives way to relief. With Jesus, oppression gives way to relief. Look at verse 4. He says, for the yoke of his burden, and catch the flow of thought here. He's just got through saying in verses 1 and 2 that a great light has has shined or is going to shine uh, from Isaiah's perspective in the future. And then he starts citing reasons for why he's great. Why these things are going to happen. And he says here in verse 4, for or because... The yoke of his burden, his there, is Isaiah's way of referring to God's people in a singular pronoun, just like he referred to them with the singular pronoun her in the previous verses. He's just kind of shifting. Don't get confused by that. He says, for the yoke of his burden, that's the burden of his people, and the burden of God's people, and the staff for his shoulder, the means of keeping them subdued, the rod of his oppressor, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian. The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian. That's why there's going to be great relief. That's why there's so much cause for hope and joy at the coming of Jesus. It's because with him, with him on the scene, with him on your scene, Oppression gives way to relief. That is, he ends the purposeless way of life that we live. The yoke that burdens. He ends that. There's suddenly purpose for your living. Purpose for the things that you do. No longer just the grind of day in and day out and working and spending and doing it all over again. He ends the purposeless way of life, the yoke that burdens. He eases the abuse of persecution, the staff for our shoulder. He thwarts the hostility of tyrants, the rod of our oppressors. God has done that. He has done that. And will continue to do that for all those who've seen the light. Has and will continue. The culmination of which will come with his return when it will be completed once and for all. Oppression gives way to relief just like it did with the Israelites 600 years before Isaiah on the day of Midian that he alludes to here. 600 years before the Israelites, Isaiah cites this as an example of exactly what's going to happen when Jesus comes on the scene. And the day of Midian was the time when, against insurmountable odds, you might remember, uh, God used a leader named Gideon. And 300 unlikely men with him, from among other places, by the way, Zebulun and Naphtali, he used 300 unlikely men to overthrow, get this, to overthrow 135,000 in the Midian army. And in so doing, he relieved the people of Israel of their oppression. 
the very thing he promises to do through Christ here in Isaiah. The very thing, mind you, that's already happening, that he's already doing in the hearts and minds of those who embrace him as their Lord and Savior. Those who walk in the light. Those who conduct their lives according to his way of righteousness and hope and help. It's happening emotionally and spiritually as God relieves the oppression of our guilt and the pain that we've suffered from the effects of sin. It's happening physically to varying degrees as God so chooses this side of eternity, the very thing that we're praying for Nate, that God would relieve his oppression, that it would give way to relief by God miraculously healing him. It's happening in some cases as God so chooses. And listen, it's going to happen completely when Jesus returns, as I said, once and for all. Because with Jesus, with Jesus, oppression gives way to relief. It happens. It happens. Number four, with Jesus, strife gives way to peace. Oppression gives way to relief and strife gives way to peace. That's verse five. Check it out there. He says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, you can almost get a little bit of the uh, uh, kind of rhythm of the Hebrew poetry. And you know it's a, written in a poetic form. You can see it in your text. It's laid out differently in verses 2 through 6 or 7 than it was in verses 1 and 2. Or verses 3 on is different than verses 1 and 2. It's poetry here. He's using metaphors. He says, for every boot of the champion warrior in battle tomb and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Once again, this is evidence for, for why the light is, that is going to shine is going to be a great light, right? And the fire here most likely refers to a useful fire conveying a time of peace. Useful because implements of war, implements of destruction are now being used for things that are good, for production, if you will. So that with the advent of Christ, that first Christmas, and the victory that he secures, that which was previously used for destructive purposes in our lives, like battle boots and military uniforms, or intellect and talent, or money and get up and go, those things before Christ that were used for destructive purposes with Christ are now used for constructive purposes purposes with Jesus and only with Jesus in our lives because God is in the midst and in the business of redeeming that which is spoiled amen God is in the business of redeeming that which is dirty it's going to happen on a worldwide scale with the second coming of Christ and it's already happening on an individual scale an individual scale as a result of his first coming, just like Isaiah said here in verse 5, using the metaphors we see. I love the story of Josh McDowell in that respect. And Josh McDowell is now a famous apologist a, or a defender of the Christian faith, but that wasn't always the case in his life. Uh, some of you may know his story. Before Christ, Josh McDowell was a pretty angry man. And his sole purpose was to disprove the claims of Christianity and make its adherents look bad. That was the sole purpose, the driving force in his life. He was adamant about it. He researched it. He argued. He debated. He did whatever he could because he wanted to bring shame to the name and he wanted to bring shame to you and I. And so he decided one day, in order to do that better, 
better than he was already doing it, he would read the Bible. He would read the Bible of the Bible thumpers. He would read the Bible of the biblical Christians so that he could have more ways to combat the things that they were saying and to disprove their claims and to laugh at them and make fun of them. Only problem is, along the way, he saw the light. He saw the light and he gave his life to Christ and he changed his course 180 degrees so that now he spends himself trying to convince people of the truth instead of trying to convince them that it's false. And he does so by writing books like More Than a Carpenter and Evidence That Demands a Verdict, both of which I would commend to you. All because with Jesus, strife gave way to peace in his life. With Jesus, strife gave way to peace. That's why he made the 180 degree turn. And I imagine that many of you could testify similarly, couldn't you? That before you embraced Jesus as Lord of your life, you were filled with strife and hatred, weren't you? But when you finally believed, when you finally saw the light, the light, capital L, something happened, didn't it? Something happened in your heart, like peace began to fill your heart, and you began to use your gifts and your talents and your treasure and all of that for God's glory instead of your own, to advance his kingdom instead of just advancing your own little fiefdom. You started showing kindness to everyone instead of just to those from whom you needed something in a manipulative sort of way. Those sorts of things began to happen in you, didn't it? Because that's what happens with Jesus. Strife gives way to peace and rest. First, inwardly in your heart, between you and God, removing that enmity that exists apart from him because of your sin and his holiness. It happens inwardly first, that strife gives way to peace, and then it happens outwardly in your life between you and those around you. Suddenly, you're convicted by your feelings of hate toward people. Suddenly, you can no longer smile and act like everything's okay. You have to make it right with them. Am I right? I think so. That's because with Jesus, strife gives way to peace. Do you know him? Do you know him? Number five, with Jesus, man gives way to God. Man gives way to God. This is that famous verse in this passage that I trust will mean that much more, having looked at the context within which it's written, where, again, citing another reason for how and why this great light is going to shine, he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This verse, one of the things I want you to see here is that this verse reinforces Isaiah's prophecy just two chapters earlier where he said the Lord himself will give you a sign. That's a sign of salvation in the context there of chapter 7. He said the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, ding, 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 bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which if you've been in church world for any length of time, you've sang the Christmas songs, you know means God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. He says there's going to be a son, 
and he's going to be God. That's essentially what he says there in chapter 7. And since he refers to the Son in chapter 9 as mighty God, that's one of his names, he's one and the same. And the child of chapter 9 is the son of chapter 7, the sign that salvation has come, the reason for hope in the midst of helplessness, the light in the midst of darkness. And when Jesus was born, Matthew once again cited this verse here in Isaiah 7 and said, he's the one. Leaving no question, leaving no doubt that he's the one that we've been looking for. The light of life. Jesus with Jesus, man gives way to God. Mighty God, as he says there, full of strength and power. With Jesus, man gives way to God, wonderful counselor, who offers wisdom and guidance beyond ourselves, literally wisdom and guidance that is out of this world. With Jesus. With Jesus, man gives way to everlasting Father, who never leaves us or forsakes us and never fails to give us exactly what we need at exactly the right time, even though we think he's a day late and a dollar short. We do, don't we? Not true. Not with Jesus. With Jesus, man gives way to the Prince of Peace who brings us rest. That's the God who Jesus is, described by Isaiah 700 years before he ever showed up on earth. That's the God who Jesus is. And the government, he says, shall be upon his shoulder, which you might construe as meaning that he was going to be under the oppression of an earthly government. Not so. He's trying to get across here that he alone, Jesus alone, will carry the burden of his rule and reign, his government, his kingdom, his nation that he alluded to earlier. He alone uh, would have authority over all that is his. A kingdom that he came to establish spiritually in the hearts and lives of those who love him now. And a kingdom that he will establish physically when he returns over all the earth. So no matter how you slice it, then or now, with Jesus, man truly gives way to God. Whether you like it or not, whether you're voluntary in that now or involuntarily involuntary in that later, either way, you're going to give way to God. If it's later, involuntarily, it's too late for your etern eternity. Embrace him now. Embrace him now if you haven't already, and if you have, rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel. Why not give way to God today? Why not give way to God today? That's number five. And then last, with Jesus, uncertainty gives way to assurance. With Jesus, despair gives way to hope. Adversity gives way to joy. With Jesus, oppression gives way to relief. Strife gives way to peace. With Jesus, man gives way to God. And last, but definitely not least, 
with Jesus, uncertainty gives way to assurance. Assurance. Look at why, verse 7. He says of the increase of his government, this son, this child that would be born, he says of the increase of his government, his rule and reign, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, there will be no end to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then look at this last sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's the assurance. There's the assurance that the passion of God Almighty will accomplish the work that is promised here. Have you ever run into uh, uh, somebody who's really passionate about what they do? Ever run into anybody like that, like a, a really passionate salesman? Come on, anybody? Go ahead. A few? Yeah, I'm sure there's quite more. When we were first married, um, a Kirby vacuum salesman came to our door. Passionate. And he just so happened to come to our door when I was at work. And after a while, I think Jessica was born, and I'm not even sure, not even Jessica. Okay, she was babysitting, though, a little neighbor boy. He was about five or six, four or five, little Elliot. And, and, and so she eventually invited the guy in to hear more of what he had to say. And by the time that he was done with her, she was convinced, and beyond any shadow of doubt, not even a reasonable, she was convinced that we absolutely needed a Kirby, and she told him to come back when I got home from work. Hello? Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> and I was so mad. I was so mad. I mean, we didn't need a Kirby. We didn't need the thing, let alone did we have the money to buy one. We were like living paycheck to paycheck in those early days. We were just newly married. And I certainly didn't want to waste my time after a full day of work talking to the guy. But he came back. And by the way, a little side note on that intervening time there that I'm ashamed to tell you. Little Elliot being there, and I got home, and I was mad, and we had a fight. And it went on for too long. We were in the living room, and little Elliot was in the family room. And pretty soon, we noticed that Elliot was standing right next to us as we were face to face. And we stopped and we looked down at him. And what? And he had little army men in his hands. And he said, the army men told me to tell you to please stop fighting. Lesson learned. Not that we've had it perfect since then. But we've certainly remembered that. Certainly haven't had it perfect. The girls would attest to that. But we've grown. Because God used the mouth of a babe to bring us back to reality. Unfortunately, the Kirby guy still showed up. And I was cordial to him, invited him in, and within five minutes, he had me eating out of the palm of his hand. I was hanging on every word. Thirty minutes later, he walked out with a check, and I started vacuuming.
Why? Why in the world did I capitulate so quickly, especially when I didn't have the money really to be doing that kind of a thing? Why? It's because that guy was zealous about selling vacuum cleaners. Vacuum cleaner. Nothing low-key about his pitch. Like he was passionate about what he was doing. He was passionate about his work. And what I want you to see is that that is a drop in the proverbial bucket. A drop in the ocean compared to the passion and the zeal of God Almighty to accomplish his work. Amen? Amen. Drop in the bucket compared to his passion and zeal to expand his rule and reign, as the verse says. Drop in the bucket compared to his zeal to spread his peace and to establish his kingdom in the first place when he first came and to sustain his realm, world without end. Like he's passionate about it, God is. So passionate about it that he will not be deterred. So passionate about it that he became flesh and eventually died in order to make it happen, in order to make verse 7 happen. That's how zealous he is for the things that he does. He became God with us so that we could have God in us. Saved from the consequences of our sin and given the right to become children of God. Listen, loved ones, that's assurance. That's assurance. That God would go to such lengths to fulfill his promises. That he would go to such depths to grab a hold of you out of the miry clay. That he would go to such heights, lifted up on the cross that he was, to make it happen. That's passion, and that's assurance. And you can have it. You can have the assurance of his salvation. You can have the assurance of being a part of his kingdom. You can have the assurance of being forgiven of your sin and being relieved of your guilt. You can have the assurance of his love forever and ever, never to be withdrawn from you. You can have the assurance of his righteousness. You can have the assurance of his grace no matter what you've done. If you will only see the light, the light of life, and walk in it. If you only enter into a relationship with Jesus and give way to him. Give way to him. Let's pray. Lord. Lord. For those who are already yours sitting here. Those with whom you already dwell those with whom you are already with. God, would you bless them for their humility and their faith, their trust in you? And would you fill them more and more with all joy and peace and believing, as your word says, and causing them to abound in hope upon hope as they trust in you? God, will you do that more and more as a result of these truths from your word? Bless them immensely, God. And Lord, for those who don't know you, who aren't yours. God, will you hear their prayer? Will you hear their prayer of faith? Even right now. Their prayer that they believe in you and trust in you. Will you hear their prayer of repentance, God? Confessing their sin and 
asking you to forgive them. God, will you hear their prayer of commitment to live for you the rest of their days, come what may. Sickness, disaster, devastation or despair. That it's all for you the rest of their life. God, would you hear their prayer?